ladies and gentlemen, those of you from this world and the next, it gives me great pleasure to present the Satanic Player Society, traveling sideshow of the Macaw. Join us as we bring you wonders from the abyss, pros from the shadows, and tales of horror and madness. Now, it brings me great joy to introduce tonight's performers, each bringing their own skills and talents to the show. Please be standing and give a round of applause for... Citizen Horror, the two-headed wonder. One head is female, the other male. But do think three ladies and gentlemen, for when this devious duo come together, your mind will be irrevocably desecrated. Jessie, the roustabout. She tightens our ropes. She builds the stage in which we stand. And she mends the canvas. She also hides the bodies. Greetings and salutations, my friends. Yet again, we have another tale to share with you. Join us as we take you on a journey of murder, revenge, curses, and transformation. From the talented pen of G.R. Wilson, it is our very pleasure to bring you the Full Moon's Hunt. It was a dreary Thursday afternoon, and I was sitting and writing at my well-worn writing desk in my tiny East End flat, when my landlord knocked at my door, telling me I had a letter. I was astonished at this rare turn of events. My life as a writer on topics of the occult and of the strange leaves me isolated and poor in quantity of correspondence. Yet sure enough, here in my landlord's hairy and gnarled hand was an envelope addressed to, yours truly, one Mr. Thomas Savelli. After my door slammed shut and my landlord's shuffling steps and grumbles faded away and I was left alone with the lovely and sophisticated handwriting on the envelope, I felt delighted and enchanted with this turn of events. Later happenings brought upon me by the opening of that letter and the obedience to its instructions would leave me with a remarkably opposite mood. The letter was written in the same neat and elegant handwriting as the envelope address, contrasting with the nearly curt brevity of the content. It told me that the writer's master, a Scottish nobleman and publisher with high literary interest, had read my first published book and wished me to meet with an agent of his that same evening to discuss further possibilities. The anonymous writer provided the name of the meeting point in question, a pub a couple blocks from my flat. Naturally, I was nearly as surprised with the imminence of the meeting as with the arrival and content of the letter. Nevertheless, my pleasure and excitement had me by both ears, and I immediately endeavored to groom myself and gather a pen and paper. Half past 7 p.m., to be precise, was the time this mysterious agent would meet me. This was late autumn, so the streets were already growing dark. The sun had sunk below the higher buildings of London by then, leaving my neighborhood dim, especially with the rolling in of the gray fog. The moon, just missing a hair of itself before it could be called full, did its best to penetrate the haze. 
The gas lamp posts were like fuzzy will-o'-the-wisps, underneath which drunks and other typical foul-smelling destitutes and villains lounged, occasionally calling out with some slurred expression of desperation, rage, or of emotions and intentions as foggy as the streets and as the black vapors in the poor fool's own minds. As I walked past Alley and Alcove on my way to the meeting pub, I began to second-guess my decision to venture after dark through such areas. But again, opportunity and curiosity pushed and pulled me onward. I was sadly reminded of the other inhabitants of my little corner of our wondrous capital, prostitutes, pickpockets, and vagrants, many clearly not older than seventeen, standing and creeping and glaring from every side, like ghosts emerging from the fog. I hastened to my destination, arrived outside, and entered. It was a surprisingly well-furnished establishment, cleaner than I expected, with a roaring fireplace and even an antique suit of armor in one corner. Some gentlemen sat at the bar and gave me a brief glance as I walked past. The bartender just nodded. The letter said the agent would recognize me before I recognized him. A fellow, at least I believe the person to be one, in a black hood, waved to me from a small table by the fireplace. I walked over and sat down. The hood fell back, and before me was a lovely woman. Her hair, tied back, was as shiny and black as a raven's feather. Her eyes were small blue gems on a soft, snow-white face. She gave a small smile with thin lips and extended a white-gloved hand to me. Good evening, Mr. Savelli. My name is Evangeline. I'm glad the letter found you well. I introduced myself and returned the handshake, hoping I was hiding my surprise at that gesture coming from such a source. I noticed the woman's accent, Scottish, I realized. Evangeline got straight to the point. My master, my father, Lord Murka, wishes to meet with you. He's read your first book and enjoyed it mightily. He's happy to finally find you and wishes for you to travel to his estate tomorrow in the Scottish Highlands to discuss the possibility of him publishing more of your work. The topics you write on interest my father, you see, and you interest him. Her voice trailed off, and I waited a moment, thinking she had something more to say on that point. I told her I would be honored to meet with her father, and asked, forgiving if it sounded rude, why he decided to contact me in such a strange manner. Mr. Savelli, I'm afraid I cannot tell you more about my father's intentions or who he carries them out, but I must ask you, your name, it's Russian, yes? I replied that I was of one quarter Russian blood, and the family name originated in that land, yes. Evangeline closed her eyes and nodded pensively, as if this was something she'd long expected and wanted to confirm for some time. For reasons which would make terrible, horrific sense later, she didn't seem pleased at this confirmation. I wish I could tell you more, Mr. Savelli, I truly do. Now I must share something with you. My father is a harsh man, you see. More than that, he's cruel and paranoid 
and ever watchful. Mr. Savelli, I can put this off no more. Here, please, take this. She reached beneath the table and produced a beautiful silver pendant in the shape of a butterfly, then handed this precious piece of jewelry to me, the chain slinking and coiling on my palm like a sleeping baby snake. I opened my mouth to protest, and she cut me off. Just take it and ask no more. I already have said too much. And take this. Good luck, Thomas. She gave me a sheet of paper with instructions on the train route to Aberdeen, Scotland, with the necessary tickets attached. I had scarce time to consider my situation before she got up and hurried out into the night. The paper instructions directed me to leave the next day. I did so. was a long and thoughtful affair for me. As the city and outskirts of London faded into the green pastures and farmer's fields, my thoughts were on Evangeline and her ominous words. She had sounded so scared of her father, the mysterious Scottish nobleman and apparently publisher whom I was going so far north to meet. I clutched the silver butterfly pendant, the sharp points of its wingtips digging into my skin. I fell asleep to the repetitive clatter of the train's engine and its gentle rocking. I then awoke at the Aberdeen train station, where, as per the paper's instructions, another agent met me. This one was a man with a red beard, a scar on his forehead, and a neck as thick as an obelisk. He spoke nothing besides my name once as he led me from the nearly deserted train station to a waiting coach led by one large gray horse. Soon I was again out in the country, or more specifically, the forest of the Scottish Highlands. The sun was a low, orange, half-circle on the horizon, directly in front of us as we moved west down winding dirt roads through dark and long, shadowed trees. The trip to Lord Merca's Manor didn't make more than three quarters of an hour. When I arrived, the red-bearded fellow gave no more words. He simply opened up the coach door and led me to the black and spiked fence of the gray-bricked estate. Lord Merca's dwelling nevertheless dominating the small island of green grass in a sea of ancient trees was a smaller building than I expected. Three stories tall, blocky, with a roof and chimneys not too different from what I'd see in London. Certainly, as befitted a nobleman, it was a house of considerable size for a single family. And of course now, the sun was all the way down, and it was cloudy in Scotland that fateful and terrible evening. Mr. Redbeard held his lantern high, unlocked the gate, and led me up a stone path to the wide front door. The air felt chilly and moist, and crickets chirped from the tree line not far from the house. 
The door was open, and I entered. The interior of the estate spoke of ancient splendor, now fallen to abandonment and decay. There was a red carpet and a crystal chandelier, proud portraits and sturdy furniture, impressive trophies and elegant busts. But without exception, these luxuries were dusty, scratched here and there, askew, or otherwise imperfect. I awkwardly found a seat on a squeaky purple couch. My welcoming and talkative Mr. Redbeard left the room, and I looked at the tall ceiling and studied the little cracks and signs of water damage in it. A great fire burned in the fireplace, and I could feel its heat even though I sat far away. I was startled as a door swung wide open to my left, and in strode the Lord himself. Mirka was a tall man, and would be taller if he would stand up just a bit straighter. His relaxed posture made him look calm and collected rather than lazy. He had short black hair, graying at the temples, and a short beard which was a mix of gray and black. I could tell Evangeline was his daughter by the eyes. They were sharp and blue and set far back in his head, yet they enchanted and held me not too differently from Evangeline's. The nobleman grinned to see me. Ah, Mr. Savelli, so glad you come join me. Welcome. He said this with a bow, then offered his hand for a shake. He gripped my hand hard and looked me right in the eye as he continued in his heavy Scottish accent. We have much to discuss, much to do this evening. Aye, dinner's already on the table for us. Come, lad, come. I followed my peculiar host to a wide dining room featuring a long window which looked out on the back lawn of the estate, and beyond that, the impenetrable forest. The clouds still blocked the stars and moon. I was treated to a delicious meal of perfectly roasted duck, juicy venison, and hearty potatoes, complemented by ginger wine, which I'd never had before, but which was good. I noticed that Mirka ate less than half the quantity that I did, as if he were saving room for some greater meal later on, and what he ate first was merely an appetizer. And though the food was pleasing to the tongue and to the belly, and as the conversation was at first exciting and interesting, I felt ill at ease there across the long table from my host, as he, with twinkling eyes and glistening teeth, inquired deeply into the inspiration for my writing, into my knowledge of the occult, and finally, into my family background. This was when I went from uneasy to truly afraid, as my host's tone transformed from joviality to viciousness. Your name, good sir. It comes from that backwards and frigid land of Caven Rus, does it not? Uh, yes, sir. I'm one-fourth Russian. English by birth, though, as are both my parents, sir. Uh, why do you ask? You know of the Greek Liberation War, lad? Uh, no, sir. I do not. Well, you see, lad, Britons, or I'll say more exactly Scotsmen, still didn't get along well with Russians on every occasion, and got into fights sometimes. 
One such town, you see, was in Athens, near the end of the war when the Turks were nearly driven out, and it started to come to competition of which ally would have the biggest influence in the newly liberated land. As it happened, this competition came all the way down to some lowly Scottish and Russian troops one night, and a true brawl broke out. Someone drew their sword, and it got bloody. I could see now the throbbing vein at Marcus Temple, like he was barely holding back an extreme outburst of rage, seemingly at me. He continued, My grandfather was one of the officers who came into the fight to intervene, to be reasonable, to remind the men that they were still allies. He was an honourable man, my grandfather. The same couldn't be said for the damned, dirty, bloodthirsty scoundrel he stopped from killing a man. The Russian soldier cursed my father, who didn't understand the language, but could guess at the meaning. The Russian was soundly punished, but what my grandfather didn't know was that the freak was an honest-to-god warlock, who the next night under the full moon used his ancient Black Sea magic to curse my grandfather and all his descendants. Mirka now stood from the table as his story reached its climax. The curse was that of the werewolf lad. Aye, such things are more real than your foolish little fairy tales would have anyone believe. Under every full moon, every member of the Merka family takes the form of a bloodthirsty, uncontrollable great wolf. And you know who led this curse, lad? Your grandfather! I've waited a damn long time to trek, to trek you down and have this moment, young Savelli. I felt sweat on my neck, head and hands and noticed the room began to tilt and then spin. I put my hands on the table to sturdy myself. Murka laughed. I'll carry out my family's vendetta soon enough. See you soon, lad. As I felt some foul potion hidden in the food take effect and draw me into its druggy slumber, I swore the shape of Murka's face across the table lengthened into a snout and his eyes shifted color to a carnivorous yellow in the pale moonlight. I awoke lying flat on my back in a grass field outside. My head was heavy, and I couldn't tell how much time had passed. I remembered with horror the conversation that had transpired between myself and Lord Murka, and I felt my heart pound as I noticed the perfect large white orb of the moon like a lidless eye in the midnight sky. I sat up and noticed a paper next to me. It was from Murka. Wicky wicky lad. Oh, I can't wait for our little hunt tonight. Hope you're fast. That makes for the best sport. Don't worry, you have a good head start already. Let's see how you use it. He had signed it at the bottom in huge letters. Next to this paper was a long hunting knife. I smiled at it in my slowly fading haze and picked it up. Perhaps this madman really was giving me a sporting chance, I thought. No sooner had I finished reading the letter that I heard a wolf howl. The vicious and haunting sound 
froze my blood and set my heart thumping hard enough to burst through my chest. It dawned on me as my head cleared that I truly was in mortal danger. I set off running in the first direction I was facing towards the trees. I realized just as I hit the tree line that I'd been lying in a small clearing with the dark tree's branches and leaves shifting in the wind all around me. I frankly had no idea where I was going or with what aim as I ran. I suppose I hoped to reach some town or village where other people would bring me safety. And I hoped to not trip over any random roots or bushes as I dashed through twisting deer trails, seeing a phantom wolfman around every tree. The howl rose up again, closer than last time, and now to my left rather than behind me. I swore this time a vaguely human voice, masculine and enraged, cried out mixed in with the lupine noise. I shuddered at the thought of the creature my cruel host must have become. My mind jumped to Evangeline and how she must have wished dearly to have given me a more clear warning. I put my left hand in my pocket to feel the sleek, smooth silver of the butterfly pendant. The path led up a hill now. I followed it to get a better vantage point and maybe see some human habitation in the distance so I could have a goal rather than just flailing through the darkness. I reached the top of the hill when I heard a howl and a snarl directly behind me. I gasped. I felt my terror rise. I held my knife high and whipped around to face my pursuer backing up as I did so. The snarl rose up again, and again had that manly sound to it, as I saw a flash of yellow eyes burning in the dark, and a flash of white gleaming canines seemingly as long as my foot. A huge gray shape flew up in front of me and above me, and I hopped and then tumbled backwards in an awkward sort of flip, and then hit the ground hard on my left shoulder and rolled down the other side of the hill. I could hear the heavy and frantic breathing of a creature somewhere in the dark with me. And then I felt its hot breath and a flick of saliva as I rolled over dirt and stone and moss until I came to a rest on the flat ground in another clearing with the moon beaming down again. I felt a sharp pain radiating from my shoulder. And in the clearing, there was the beast. I saw clearly the lupine face, the cruel expression, the hunched back, and the slippery, dripping drool. He circled me, his wide pads touching down softly on the grass with each step. And then he leapt. I brought up my knife and circled instinctively to my right, stabbed the knife towards where the beast had been, and to my shock, found contact. The werewolf growled in surprise and pain, and red blood splashed from my blade. Then he came at me again, knocked me to the ground, his jaws snapping above me, but I still held my knife, and I jammed it as hard as I could in the creature's head, just below the ear. It reared up and howled in agony, my knife stuck in its temple. I crawled backwards, got up, ran past the creature writhing on the ground, and realized that, in the distance, I could see Murka's estate. I was on the far end of his back lawn. 
I hastened across the field with the haunting wolf and human screams of that ghastly thing crying after me to the dark windows of the house's dining room. I gasped for breath as I approached the window. Thinking quickly, I grabbed a decorative stone, smashed in the glass, and entered. It was dark, and I saw none of Merka's servants. I remembered that mere steel wouldn't kill a werewolf. Only silver could do the job. I felt the pendant in my pocket again, and knew what I had to do. To my luck, the fire in the parlor was still burning, about as hot as before. I put the pendant in the fire on the coals at the hottest point. Then I looked for a weapon. My work was nearly complete when I heard that awful howl and knew my furious adversary would be bursting through the broken window any moment now. I waited with the musket I'd taken from the wall. It was dusty, but serviceable. My special ammunition sat ready inside its barrel. I sat in the parlor behind the same squeaky old couch I'd waited on before. My barricade was imperfect, but it was all I had and all I needed, I hoped. I gasped as I heard a low and long growl, and the sound of a wolf's paws tinkling across broken glass. I waited and waited. The near silence was maddening. I continued to stare at the ajar door leading to the dining room. One of the doors to my side slammed open, its knob crashing against the wall as hundreds of pounds of furry and hungry terror charged at me full force. I whipped my gaze and my weapon to my right, fired my right and only shot. A cry of twisted agony dwarfing the one produced by the knife wound echoed through the parlor as a half-molten silver butterfly blasted through the beast's neck. I wrinkled my nose at the scent of burning flesh as steam billowed out with the blood from the creature's enormous wound. Mirka wailed and whined, rolling on the floor as his muscles spasmed and melted. I turned my head from the ghastly sight, but when I looked again by the end, there was nothing but a pile of wolf's bones and an enormous stain on the carpet. It has been one month since that horrible night. As I write this now, it is the late afternoon, and I am back in my little London flat, working on my next book. I was never able to find Evangeline again, to thank her for saving my life. I'd hoped she'd send me further letters or come surprise me with a visit, but there's been nothing. The first few nights after the bizarre death of the cursed Lord Murka, I had nightmares of snapping jaws and yellow eyes outside my window. Fortunately, those nocturnal visions are now only a memory. One thing does now worry me, however, more gravely than any bad dream. I didn't notice until I was on the train back home to London, a tiny puncture mark on my shoulder. It had looked infected at first, but careful treatment cured that. What worries me is that it looks like a bite. In fact, I am sure 
it is from the canine of a large wolf. I think back to that frantic tumble down the hill, and the probability of such contact with the beast, and then my heart overflows with dread. For tonight will be the first full moon since that gruesome night. Next time. What do you think? Will you let us in?